Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran, detective sergeant of the NYPD. And with me tonight, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm excited to get into this part two with Tommy Dades uh, regarding the mob cops. It's going to be amazing. And uh, that dapper gentleman in the last screen is... None other than retired first grade detective Tommy Dades. How you doing tonight, Tommy? I'm hanging in there, Bill. Phil. Well, I'm glad. Oh, to, I'm glad. Sergeant Bill, Detective Phil. We're going to start using that moniker soon. You know. All right, we're going to be back in a second if we play the police off the cuff song. It's a show with two retired detectives. Now we're in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes. Even an interview with the most powerful folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. One episode just ain't enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. It's maybe the best thing you can do. Hey guys, welcome back. This is a, we've done this topic a couple of times. This is part two of the dive into the, the mafia cops, uh, Louis Ippolito and Steve Caracappa. And we've waxed on about this case because Phil and I, and probably anyone else that has a half a brain, Aaron Rodriguez, thank you so much for the 49.99 super chat. Welcome back to police off the cuff. <laughs> we really appreciate that. Thank, thank you so you, much, Aaron. Aaron. I really appreciate it. So, you know, we, we spoke about that, you know, there's been a lot of corruption scandals in the history of the NYPD, but we can't think of any bigger corruption scandal than two detectives doing hits for the mafia. And this case was sort of, didn't go out with the sort of the explosion that should have because Ippolito and Caracappa were allowed to retire prior to them getting arrested. And this case was worked on uh, post their retirement by the Brooklyn DA's office and the FBI. And Eppolito and Caracappa both moved to Las Vegas and lived for a, a bunch of years before law enforcement and the long arm of the law met up with them. Phil, I know you want to update the the, uh, the listeners to what we were at, and uh, why don't you get them sort of uh, fixed to where we're going tonight? Sure, Billy. Uh, just to bring everything back from our last episode, this is the part two. So on Wednesday, March 9, 2005, Louis Ippolito and Stephen Caracap were arrested at their homes in Las Vegas, Nevada. They were charged on a 79-count indictment by the DEA, the FBI, the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. They were charged with eight murders as well as numerous other crimes, all related to the Lucchese and Gambino crime families of the New York Mafia. Who are these two men? Were they contract killers for the mob? Were they made members of an organized crime family? No, as it turns out that during their life of crime, they were actually members of another family, the NYPD family. 
Here is a quote of the day of their arrest from Pasquale D'Amoro, the assistant director of the NYB, uh, NY FBI office. These weren't two good cops gone bad. These were two bad guys who somehow became cops. How did they slip through the cracks and get on the NYPD and commit multiple murders and numerous other crimes? That's what we're going to what we are going to dissect tonight. You know, one of the things, and I just to uh, go back a little bit in review, both Epolito and Caracapa were hired in the class, the 1969 class for the NYPD. Uh, historically, there was a lot of things going on in the city back then. There was riots. There was a student unrest. And they rushed that class through the police academy. Many of them had almost no time and no instruction, no training, and they put them out on the street and gave them guns before they even went to the range to learn how to fire them. So they were from that class. In those classes, there were also a lot of Vietnam veterans in that class, which usually veterans make great cops because they already have that the paramilitary organizational uh, stuff in their blood. And the 69 class had a great deal of veterans. Tommy, we want to go back to 1985 and the hit on Paul Castellano since that changed the mafia in New York City as we know it. Well, 19, uh, December 16, 1985, uh, Paul Castellano and Tommy Bellotti were murdered. Um, by John Gotti and uh, Sammy Gravano uh, and numerous other people. It was a conspiracy of uh, a group of people with a lot of power in the Gambino family that year. Um, and ultimately, John became boss. Frankie DeChico uh, became the other boss, and Sammy became a captain. And that did change a, a lot of things in organized crime. You know, one of the things, Tommy, that just I want everyone to know that's not familiar with this hit was there was a lot of shooters out on the street. I don't know. I maybe think there were seven. There were there were four shooters. There were four actors. There were two on each. Two on Paul. Two on Bilotti. And I think there were an additional, possibly four backup shooters. And I know Sammy was definitely a backup shooter. He was driving, and John Gotti was in the passenger seat. And uh, there were people inside for this supposed meeting in case the shooting didn't go down, so nobody caught on. Frankie DeChico was definitely inside uh, the Sparks restaurant with a couple other captains. And as soon as the shooting happened, they left. But uh, I think there were there were definitely four shooters that actually fired their guns, and I think uh, I believe there was an additional four. Backup shooters and Sammy and John in another car. You know, Sammy Tommy, it's were... it's it's interesting to note that uh, the mob, when they do a hit like that on the street, they work in a similar fashion as the police do. Like in anti-crime, we tactically tack up when we're going to take down a car. Say we're going to pull over a car, a stolen car, a car that just did a stick up. We have two or three cars, and we tactically take it down. The mafia does the same thing, but in well, reverse, they, they obviously. Definitely planned it very uh, carefully. Um, I know the, some of the people that showed up in Lower Manhattan where they mustered up uh, before they hit, didn't even know who they were killing until they got there. You know, it was kept very under the radar on who they were killing, and the guys that 
did do the shootings were very loyal to Gotti, so they were going to do anything he asked. And you had some very powerful people that, you know, in the Gambino family gave it a thumbs up. But they broke a, a cardinal rule in organized crime. They took out a boss without a commission, okay. And uh, they thought they had the backing of uh, the Colombo family and uh, the Bonanno family and the Lucchese family. They knew they had a problem with the Genovese family and the Chin, but uh, Queso played like he was okay with it, but Queso and the Chin uh, were conspiring after the fact and doing a lot of damage. And the mob cops kind of get, in, not kind of, they do get involved in some of the murders pertaining to the repercussions of the Castellano murder. Tommy, why don't you tell us about some of the fallout that occurs as a result of the Castellano murder? I know that uh, not long after was uh, the, the hit on Frankie DeChico and... Uh, well, they, they it was uh, it was the Chin and Queso conspired to kill Frankie DeChico, also believing that John Gotti would be in the car. So there would be the payback. The boss and the other boss would be gone. Um Frankie and Chico was coming out of Jimmy Fiella's club on 86th and uh, 14th Avenue and uh, between 14th and 15th Avenue. Um, and he came out with a guy named Frankie Hart, who was a Lucchese soldier. And I guess from a distance could have could have took him for John. He was giving him a lift down, downtown Manhattan, I think. And uh, Queso, uh, Vicar Musso and Vicar Musso's brother were like a block away watching and a guy named Herbie Pate who was given to Queso by the chin who was a munitions expert who uh, was in Vietnam he actually planted the C4 under Chico's car and uh, pulled right up next to the car and pushed the button and uh broad daylight, you know, blew up Frankie. There was nothing left of him. And uh, Frankie Hart lived. He got injured, but he lived. Tommy, can we fast forward a little bit to when um, Gas Pipe did, there's an attempt on his life because that really plays into uh, the actual infiltration of the mob cops uh, into, uh, you know, Casso's world. What happens is... Um, uh, Mickey Boy Paradiso gets word to have Queso killed. And uh, that stemmed over, that's a long story, but it stemmed over a, a beef that Queso had with somebody in the Gambino family. And Mickey Boy Paradiso gives it to uh, Jimmy Heidel and Jimmy gets a crew together, three other guys. Uh, they. They shoot a queso, um, and I forget if he was injured, you know, nicked, whatever, but he runs and gets away. And he is obsessed with finding out who did it. And uh, he was offered the help of the mob cops earlier by Bert Kaplan. Didn't he uh, recognize one of the shooters, Tommy? No, he didn't know who anybody was in the car. Okay. He finds out who uh, he finds out who Jimmy Heidel is uh, through a Colombo guy named Frankie Sapinaro, not the one that went away for the murder with Joe Beef. 
his cousin, whose father was a made guy in Greg Scarpa's crew. Greg, and he tells his father, his father tells Greg, and Greg calls Queso and tells him that Jimmy is one of the shooters. So he becomes obsessed with finding Jimmy. One, to find out who the other shooters were. Two, to see if, the, if it was a sanctioned hit, who was behind it. So he had been offered the mob cops in the past. He turned it down. Um, but he had been involved in a murder, murder conspiracy against a, a man named Israel, Israel Greenwald. And Bert Kaplan used the cops for that murder and didn't tell Queso. So when he went to Kaplan and, you know, he was obsessed with getting him, Kaplan told him they were involved in that murder. And he was like, okay, I'll use them, you know. And what was his reluctance about, Tommy? Didn't he, I, I remember it was a quote from Gas. He felt that he said if they could turn on their own, they could turn on us. So what do I need them? Right. You, know? you know, Tommy, I just want you to, uh, to let our audience know a little bit. Who, tell them who Bert Kaplan is. Bert Kaplan was uh, an associate of the Lucchese crime family, first with Christy Tick uh, at the 19th hole, who was uh, part of the administration of the Lucchese family, who got locked up in 84 during the commission case. Um, and when he was going away, he gave Bert to gas pipe. Um, Kaplan was a very bright guy, very big moneymaker. And... Uh, he was discovered by law enforcement during an investigation by Agent Frank Drew at the DEA. And that's a unique story in itself on how he picked up on him. But uh, he picked up on him and he ended up locking him and his partner, Tommy Galpine, up. But Kaplan was very, uh, Kaplan was smart. He was a smart guy. But Kaplan wouldn't flip, right? In Kaplan prison? did eight years. And everyone and their mother tried to get him to flip. And uh, Joe Ponzi, I remember the day he went to M MDC. And uh, him and Bert had a conversation. And whatever, that's Joe's story to tell. But whatever Joe did, Joe got him on board. And uh, without, without that, case would have never happened because that made everything else fall into place. That made Tommy Galpine cooperate. That led to, you know, looking into where the garage was and, and uh, finding Fran's own where they killed uh, Israel Greenwald and recovered his body. So that was very, I mean, that was key to everything was flipping Kaplan. Tommy, we're going to get to all of that when we talk about, you know, the investigation, how it morphed later on, like uh, 2003. But I think we should try to stay on. Now, obviously, the, the Chico murder was revenge for Castellano. Uh, there was the Bobby Borriello hit. As Bobby Borriello, they uh, sat, Captain Abolito sat on him. There were several murder conspiracies okay. to kill him. They couldn't find him. So Queso gave it to uh, two of his uh, main hitmen. And uh, they killed Bobby Borriello, I think, right, either right in his driveway or right on his front stairs. He was getting out with his family at home. That was revenge. That was Bobby Borriello was like John's bodyguard. Um, so, so they actually, uh, Impolito and Caracappa actually had a conspiracy to kill Borriello, but they could just never catch up with him. And Cash Pipe got frustrated, so he gave it to, you know, two, two guys in his crew. 
Um, then they they uh, they killed it. The get uh, the mob cops actually pulled the trigger on Eddie Lino, who's one of the shooters in the Castellano murder. Um, they sat again revenge for, for killing Paul it's Castellano. All, it's all about Castellano, and it's all through the chin to Queso, the Kaplan to the mob cops. Okay. Um, they did several murder conspiracies on Sammy uh, Gravano at his office at 1809 Stillwell, but he was always surrounded by too many people, so they were never able to get him. Um, Again, a conspiracy to kill Sammy to Bull Gravano. Oh, yeah. So, so you've already murders. named like at least six or seven conspiracies as oh, well as yeah. the actual besides, hit on Eddie Besides murders that well, had nothing to do, they did, you know, gave information on or found people um, related to, uh, unrelated to the Castellano murder, but those were all Castellano related murders. That's what it got Queso's trust in them because they were accomplishing things that he needed to be done. Right, right. You know, but folks, that- uh, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Tom Cusinelli, thank you so much for the nine ninety nine Super Chat. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. You can support us with our Patreon. We have three different levels. And if you want to become a channel member on Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, you can go to our, our uh, YouTube channel and... Uh, Subscribe, all the people with the green font in the chat. We have five different levels of our YouTube membership, and we'd appreciate your support. But at the very least, please go on and subscribe. We need Thumbs more up. subscribers every day, and uh, join the uh, Police Off the Cuff family. Tommy, I just think it's very, very interesting how uh, the mob cops knit into the Castellano hit, so to speak, because of all the fallout from it. But it also sounds like they were you know, graduating slowly but surely to uh, get gain the trust of Gas Pipe Queso. And after the attempt on his life, that's when they actually gained his trust. And they just went on a rampage, it seems like, after that. Yeah, I mean, they they gave uh, information on this guy, Delappy, who was in California, and uh, some people out there to kill him. There was a double in the carting business out in... Uh, in uh, Long Island, um, there was Otto Heidel, no relation, who they gave up as an informant. Um, there was there was Jimmy Heidel. Uh, you know, they 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 were on a roll. You know, Tommy, I just want to know also for our listeners, can you describe a little bit the difference in the personalities between uh, Louis Polito and Steve Caracappa? You can see in size. Uh, Ippolito is a huge man, overweight, uh, and Steve Caracapper is the thin. Uh, I, I believe wasn't he a Vietnam veteran? Yes. Yeah. And who he was the more? I would say the more. He was vicious. the more ruthless out of the yes. two. You know, um, he actually uh, pulls the trigger on uh, Eddie Lino. You know, he shoots him six times in the head. Um, he was very low key. From what I was told, uh, a very low-key guy. Uh, he was trusted by all different agencies because of the position that he held. Um, you know, it was a wealth of inf- had a wealth of information to give up. Polito uh, didn't have access to the things that Tara Capta had. I mean, 
as a cop, of course, you get access, but Caracapa had access to more detailed um, information than Eppolito would have ever had. Eppolito and Caracapa was in intel the intelligence the division? Major, major case squad. Okay. Uh, he was the pin, pinpoint man of organized crime for the NYPD back then. You know, major case. He kept track of all the um, OC homicides. You know, he knew what investigations were happening. He was he was the guy that most people talked to. I never had contact with him. Tommy, I got to make this point. That right there, what you just said, he was fingertips away from extremely sensitive information in the major case squad of the NYPD. And that right there alone, that fact alone makes it the biggest corruption scandal in the history of the NYPD that someone with uh, such sensitive information at their fingertips was on the payroll of Gas Pipe Queso, as well as uh, Lou Ippolito also on the payroll. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Tommy. What was there? I mean, did they get monthly, uh, uh, weekly money, monthly money? Was there bonuses? Tell us a little bit about I, that. I Tommy. guess, I guess you know, listen, it was um, a lot of people involved in this investigation. Um, a lot of hard work. Everybody played a part, you know, in this. The, the thing that I guess makes it different from other scandals that took place were that there were a lot of you know i mean it, other corruption cases they they pertain them as people who were taking money you know back in a time when it was a time when you know that was there was a time in the police department where that was accepted just like there was a time in tammany hall where that was accepted um and then you know things changed and you know different different things happened where that wasn't accepted anymore they weren't just taking money they and turning a blind eye they were actually destroying um very good detective and agents investigations that cost a lot of money to investigate and things that guys put their heart and soul into so they were sabotaging that and not only were they sabotaging that, they were also giving information that people killed, picking them up to be killed or killing them themselves. And they were on a retainer. I believe it was 4,000 a month, don't quote me. And if they did something that, you know, led to something big that Queso had wanted, they, you know, they were given a lump sum, 40, 50, $60,000 at a clip. But, uh, they were contract murders, murderers for, for organized crime. And, and the other part of it is too, they, you know, they betrayed people that trusted them. You know, um, they didn't just betray the badge, which they did, but they, be, they betrayed relationships and friendships. Tommy, you know? let me make this point real quick. So besides we know the mob cop story is they were contract murderers for the mob, 100%. But they compromised very sensitive investigations by giving out information, let's say, on a wiretap or, uh, you know, a pending uh, arrest and situation uh, like number, that. Can't even name the number of investigations that they destroyed on people, you know, and informants that they gave up. You know, um, so not only killing people, compromising investigation, and placing other law enforcement off, uh, law enforcement officers at at risk for their safety, basically, correct? Well, I I told you, uh, Gaspipe got prosecuted by Charlie Rose, and uh, 
He didn't like Charlie Rose, who was a U.S. attorney, who was a great, great guy. And he's a federal prosecutor. And they ran his name, but they came up with the wrong address. They came up with the address of the commentator, Charlie Rose. Sat on the house. And had they saw the real Charlie Rose, they would have killed him. So that's what I try to say. Had they wanted a cop's information or somebody that was getting close to Queso that he wanted dead that was in law enforcement, they would have done it for the right price. They had no, there was, there was nothing that they didn't do and nothing that they wouldn't do. No boundaries at all, huh, Tom? No, no, no line in the sand for them. Wow. You know, Tommy, one of the things I just want people to also know that they don't know police procedure. Every time a detective speaks to someone, he does what's called the DD5, which is a you know jargon for a complaint follow-up. Within the cases in detective squads, there's highly sensitive information. Really highly, like, you know, there's people, of course, in the police department whose family are criminals. So just because they're cops, Everyone cannot have access to this top secret information. However, here's two criminals that were carrying a badge. It wasn't just DD5s. It was, um, you know, information that they would get that the usually detectives don't have access to. It was government information, you know, government wiretaps, government bugs, besides state bugs. But, you know, they he also was, in, you know, in communication with all different law enforcement agencies in the city, you know, so he was giving up, he was giving up, you know, anything he got his hands on. Carrie Kappa had, uh, uh, had access to highly confidential information that was withheld from just any police officer in the NYPD. Right. Only you, people who I'm, were in the I'm know had the information. Names of who they, who they betrayed, but, you know, I think very highly of, of the guys that, that uh, I'm talking about, but they betrayed guys, like I said, they, they knew more, they forgot more about organized crime than I know. And they were legends and they trusted Caracapa. So they would communicate with him, you know, for whatever, I, you know, I don't remember the conversations that they had, how it came about, but he was known to, you know, speak to different people, find out about, you know, to put stuff in databases, whatever, for the Major K squad. I told you, he created these homicide books from 1980 to 92 of, you know, informationals. Like, so if you're in a squad, you know, if you're investigating when it's crime, you go right to the name and it gives you basically a synopsis of everything a detective would need to know to at least get started on the case or look back yeah. at it. And you know, I'm sorry, Tom. They committed, you know. You know, Tommy, someone in the chat, uh, Nagon11, uh, your statement is incorrect, and I'm going to have Tommy clear this up. The scary thing was if gas pipe didn't flip, we'd have never heard of the mafia cops. That's not correct. The only ones who would have known or suspected would have been cops, and they weren't going to do anything. Tommy, no, you that's want to true, because I'll tell you, I could listen to me, I'll tell you right now. If gas pipe doesn't flip, then we don't know. We don't know about um, Tommy Galpine, and we don't know about um, Burke Kaplan. But there's an, if Burke Kaplan, you know, if Burke Kaplan decided to cooperate, you know, 
so gas pipe gives it up, but gas pipe's not used at the trial. Gas pipes, you know, not used at all at the trial. Because, because they felt so gas pipe wasn't they, swearable, they right? It wasn't credible. And, and some other, there was other issues with him, but, you know, I won't even get into that. But um, Bert Kaplan knew, Tommy Galpine knew, and a guy named Franzone who owned the, the, the body shop where he was present with, with Santoro when uh, Louis' cousin when when they killed uh, that's that's Nicky Guido when they when they killed sent when they killed uh, Israel Greenwald they left Franzone behind Franzone knew where that body was buried and it didn't take much to get him to cooperate you know so yeah gas pipe you know lit the flag to let him know you know everybody know what was going on but there were a lot of other people that could have gave him up and listen. Gas pipe wasn't the one that put him in jail. It was Franzone. It was Betty Heidel. It was that was another person who knew that she she identified that. Tommy, Tommy, tell the story about Betty Heidel. Tell that one. Wait, wait, let me just make a point real quick before you tell the story because I got to make this point. I could remember now that that comment that that person uh, said about gas pipe, you know, giving up the information. Yeah, he did. However. Uh, there were other people that corroborated. And I remember, Tommy, you telling me this, and I'm going to give a quote from you. When it was first released uh, in the newspapers, it was uh, that, uh, you know, the mafia cops, Empolino uh, and Caracapa were involved in organized crime. And then it died down because of the fact that gas pipe wasn't swearable, like we said. But I remember asking you about it, Tommy, and you said to me, quote, if somebody can corroborate other than gas pipe, what those two guys did, they're going to jail, and that somebody turned out to be Burton Kaplan. Obviously, Tommy Galpine was also part of uh, of the whole criminal organization that could have brought him down too. But you make the great point that gas pipe wasn't the one that was used in court in federal court. It was Kaplan, uh, you know. So there was other people. Kaplan, Galpine. It was uh, the, the the reports that were found of what he ran. Um, you know what was found in the in the in the folders. There's so much stuff. You know, uh, I was telling Philly before that uh, I won't mention any names, but uh, me and uh, me, my team and two FBI agents arrested an individual for shooting a wise guy for shooting another wise guy. And uh, we arrested them federally and he, he didn't cooperate. He took 26 years and um, he tells Queso that in prison that he was sitting on the on Jimmy Heidel the day that the cops pick him up. And he, he says, I saw those two cops pick up Jimmy that day on, on Bay 8th Street. And uh, Betty Heidel also had the printout of the phone records because he called her from Bay 8th Street. Frankie her, had son, her son, her son Jimmy called from Bay Eight yes. from the telephone booth. She had she had the records from the payphone. Um, um, Frankie Heidel saw after they grabbed him and try mistakenly identified him as Jimmy using Jimmy's car, and Betty and her daughter came out and said, "Like, what are you doing?" Frankie saw them get off Ninety Second Street, which would be the exit that you would really get off of if you were going to Bay Eight Street the day that he disappeared. So there was so much, so the, 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 the wise guy who saw um, the cops pick him up was sitting on Jimmy Heidel to kill him. That's why he told Queso 
you know, I was sitting on it to kill him. And I saw those cops pick him up. And that was the last time anybody. Let, let me just get this straight, Tommy. So Impolito and Caracappa go out to uh, the address where Jimmy Heidel lived. However, they mistake his brother Frankie for him. And then the mother comes out, Betty, and she interacts with them quickly. And they realize it's the wrong guy. And they leave. And back going back to Brooklyn, Frankie happens to see them on the highway and sees them get off at 92nd Street. Which the timeline would be the is perfect. With the phone right. call from Jimmy from Bay 8th Street to his mother. And then but the wise guy tells you know, gas pipe in jail. And that's the last time he's ever saw him. Yeah, anyone ever sees him. So basically they get off the highway to go to uh, 92nd Street and they, they got that information one way or another that he was there. But this otherwise guy is sitting on uh, Jimmy Heidel to kill him. And he actually sees uh, Impolito and Cara Kappa grab Jimmy Heidel and put yes. him in the car, correct? And, and, and also, that was told to in jail. The, uh, Jimmy's sister and father were also told where uh, were, were also told that if he didn't come home where his car would be, and his car was there with a change of clothes in it. Was so that now, his car that we put on the screen? Is that the car? No, that's that's oh. Nicky Guido's. Oh, okay, okay. I'm sorry. So, so Tom, tell us about how. Uh, in 2003, when you began the investigation, that was uh, uh, you were prompted by Betty Heidel. Give us give us the insight on that, Tom. I was sitting at my desk and uh, Betty Heidel called me. And uh, at that time, she wasn't too thrilled with me or the police department or the FBI. And uh, she knew her son was killed by two cops and she knew the case. So it flipped. But she really. Uh, was still getting no satisfaction on it. And uh, she was she was pretty, you know, heated. And uh, I can understand, you know, why she was. And I understood. And I tried to be as compassionate as I could to her, even though she was ripping the NYPD and the FBI apart. But uh, I understood the other side of the coin, too. But I didn't try to explain that to her. And she just kept telling me, why aren't you going to do something about this? And, it was really over my head, you know. It's it's like when she was asking me to do something for her, I was in my head. I'm saying like, there's no way that I can even where my where do I begin here, you know? And I all I did was promise her that I would I would try, I would make an attempt. And uh, the first people I went to was uh, Mike Vecchione, who was the chief of the Rackets Bureau, and someone that I did so many different cases with, and I trusted. And Joe Ponzi, who is the chief investigator of Brooklyn DA's office. And that's really where the fire got lit and where it started. And it, the fire grew. Many, many different people got involved. Vegas got involved. You know, New York DEA got involved. FBI, U.S. Attorney's Office, Brooklyn DA's office. And then I retired from the NYPD and I ended up working for Joe Hines while this whole case was getting taken down. Guys, we have 100, 204 people in the chat and only three thumbs up. Give us a thumbs up. Take a time out. Give us a thumbs up. Uh, hit that bell. Come on, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. In the chat, we got Jimmy Calandra, Beth Avenue Story. Jimmy, thank you so much for all your support. You've I been a big, you've been a big supporter. Jimmy, Jimmy did a great interview with Brian Glaze Gibbs the other night. 
And uh, that was somebody that Joe Ponzi uh, was very instrumental in his prosecution and his cooperation. And uh, it was a really great interview. Jimmy did a great job. And uh, Brian, uh, you know, even though he hung out with some really bad people that did some really bad things, you know, crossed the line with a, a police officer and a parole officer, God rest both their souls. Um, but uh, he turned his life around. Uh, he had nothing to do with those two atrocious crimes. But uh, Jimmy did a great, great interview with him. And uh, he, he brought out... Glaze, uh, very, very bright guy. Very bright guy. You know, I love the way Jimmy starts his show. Hey, guys. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Hey, guys. <laughs> that, that's what he says after he goes, pow! He's got a great open. And then, hey, guys. I and think I gotta gotta so, so someone in Hollywood's going to try to steal it from him, you know? Listen, I got to tell you, he really has turned his life around. And he's doing a fantastic job. I mean, this is a guy from the street, has no, you know, knowledge about podcasting or anything. And look at him. He's doing fantastic. God bless him. And he's he really, really doing some great interviews. Tommy, you're right. That interview the other night was fantastic. We hope to get Glaze on our show. I mean, he's a very interesting character. Jimmy, we've had on. We've been on his show. And uh, any of his subscribers, give us the thumbs up on our channel. Any of our subscribers, go on Jimmy's, give him the thumbs up. And uh, we try to cross pollinate as Billy always says. That's and, right. Uh, Jimmy's got a really interesting show, man. It, it, great stories. Does. I love the stories, you know. I'm glad he's doing well. Bang! Hey, <laughs> hey guys. That. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and that, that line, the streets, the streets will never love, love you back. back. That's, uh, that's true. It's and they used to say that about the police department. You love the police department, but the police department will never oh, love yeah, you back, yeah. right? <laughs> That's how we have that old saying, right? A million out of boys don't equal one ah shit. You know? Yeah, you ain't kidding. You get the ah shit, and that's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> what did you do for me today? Yeah, that's, right. that's the truth. That's right. Jimmy, good luck with your show, man. Good man, Jimmy. So, uh, Tommy, one of the things, too, uh, uh, we spoke about it the last time. They found some documents in someone's house that had Epolito's fingerprint on it. And yeah, that they was, had proved uh, that he copied it in his precinct. That was Rosario Gambino, who was a major player in the Gambino family. And there was investigations going on on him. And uh, Eppolito obtained the folder from the intelligence division. He, he uh, conned the detective with a ruse of a case to give him the folder. And uh, he made copies of the folder. There were fingerprints on the folder. On, the FBI did a search warrant in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, at Rosario Gambino's home. They found the folder. They sent it to Quantico. They found Xerox copies of Epolito's fingerprints and could put it to the 6-2 squad that where the copies came from. And somehow he managed to uh, beat it and get promoted with the chief of detectives hating his guts. So that, that's, um, that's amazing. You know, something, if you were uh, in this day and age, if you're involved in any kind of corruption scandal, even if you're innocent, you'll never ever get promoted. That's for sure. And chief McCastro hated his guts. You know, that's talk about corruption right there. That, that was probably like one of the other highlights of these, this mad dogs crime spree between the two of them. There's a high level of corruption. That's the highest levels of the police department. Obviously, you know, look the other way. 
on a, on a slam dunk case that he shouldn't have continued on in the police department. Well, I'm going to give you, you could uh, back it up based on the federal lawsuit. I'm going to give you, I was just going to give you that example. I, me and Ponzi would always talk and I would say, Joe, I would say like, something's not right here with, with this trial room, hold these transcripts, something just ain't right, you know? And, uh, Several years later, not everybody put in for the lawsuit, but several families put in a class action lawsuit against the police department. And the Honorable Judge Deary from the Eastern District, uh, it's in Google if you Google it, um, he awarded the families that put in for that lawsuit $5 million each because he read the same thing I did and said that he should have been fired and it had he been fired, he wouldn't be in a position to do the things he did and commit the murders that he committed. So it was so egregious what this judge read that he awarded the families $5 million apiece. I mean, that's very, very powerful. That's, yeah, that's powerful. going to the highest levels of the NYPD. It is powerful. So, Tommy, why do you think, or how do you think, and if you don't want to answer this, that's fine. How did the NYPD miss this? These two, you know what? I I'll be honest with you. I can't. I, I can't. I don't know. I mean, I I had nothing to. You know, I read the same thing everybody else did in the newspaper when this first broke in 1993. I think it was, and uh, I didn't believe a word of it. and didn't pay any attention to it. Um, then it came across my you know, conversation with somebody again in 1998 that gives me a lot of information on it, but there's really nothing I could do with it. And then in 2003, uh, you know, my conversation with Betty, um, should Epolito reading his folder, should he have been fired comparing it to other people that I know who were fired, especially one individual. And I know Philly knows who I'm talking about. Oh yeah. Um, that should have never been fired. You know, it was, it was, a uh, in black and white, he was guilty of sin. There's no way, there's no way he should have kept his job, but he did. Um, did IAD, you know, were they were they following them? I, I I don't know. I told you I read four four reports on the both of them. Not enough to really, you know, I guess do anything with. But I can't tell you. Um, all I can tell you is that Epolito definitely had a rabbi somewhere. You know what's really astonishing to me, Tommy, is that they were clearly on the radar screen. Impolito was. I'm sorry, maybe not Bolton, but Impolito was on the radar screen. He walks away from it. Whatever happened, God only knows. But how did he get removed from the radar screen all these years later? Because that was in the 80s. He was whacking people into the 90s and the 2000s, and and they never came. They were never a blip on the radar screen again. That's really that really says something about uh, about uh, the Internal Affairs Division, I guess, or whoever was in charge in the police department. Is uh, no, I just can't get over it. It's astonishing. Besides them killing for the mob, how could they the have FBI been? Did, the FBI did um, when Queso uh, first flipped. They did start an investigation on the both of them very quickly. But once Queso was discredited for numerous other reasons, it ended because, you know, they, they couldn't use them. Right. Folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with Tommy Dade's first grade detective, OC expert. 
Joe Murray, attorney at law, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. I'm sorry, .law.com. When we cover this topic, Joe Murray's switchboard is inundated with calls. <laughs> Every, everyone needs an attorney from some. You got to read on Jimmy Calandra's show. He'll be. He won't that's, be able to handle that's it. That's right, there. Jimmy. You should have Joe advertise on your show. Exactly. <laughs> He'll have to hire a couple of associate attorneys to pick up all yeah, the work. Really. Oh God! But listen, going back to to the story here, Tom. Uh, you know, around 2003 is when uh, the investigation really kicked into high gear. Obviously, the call from Betty Heidel. Uh, you gave her your promise and your word that you wanted to uh, look at it. You 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 told you 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 didn't think you know you weren't telling her this, but you didn't think that you could possibly ever come oh. to a, a culmination on the case and an arrest. But so, give us a little insight. What happened after that? You went to Mike Vecchione. You went to Joe. How did it? Where did it go from there? Tom? I went to Mike. I went to Joe. Um, Joe, they both, you know, we both thought about it. We all thought about it for like a day, you know, and, uh, we regrouped and, uh, said, okay, let's, let's do this. So I went over to the Eastern district and I thought they were going to kick me out and I left Eastern district of the FBI office, Eastern district of the U.S. attorney's office. And, uh, I left with a, a hand truck, several hand trucks of uh, boxes of the whole case. And uh, at first, the feds were time barred because the statute of limitations had run out. They weren't able to prove a continuing enterprise with them. Uh, You're talking so, about for conspiracy or for RICO? For a RICO case and right, straight, right. straight cases on their crimes of five years. So it was way past that. So at the beginning, we were going to look, we were going to use gas pipe. And, uh, you know, the intention was to prosecute them on Jimmy Idell's murder. Um, and that's where we were, we were heading. And then, you know, we found some good stuff in those boxes. Uh, I reached out to Vegas through uh, agents that I knew um, and hooked me up with an agent named Timmy Moran, who was out in Las Vegas. And he started a case in Vegas. Uh, I actually pick him up from the airport and drive him to the Eastern District. And he has a conversation with the Eastern District, letting him know that he's representing the federal side with us in, uh, in New York. Uh, he starts to follow up Alito. Uh, if they follow him to... Lucchese and Bonanno social clubs in Vegas, Epolino and Caracapa. Uh, they end up with a source that buys drugs off of them. And Tommy, hold a second. You mean S-O-U-R-C-E, not S-A-U-C-E. No, a source. <laughs> not a source. Wait, wait, Billy, we're going to do, do the stuff on top of the kitchen. Keep that out of this. I, could, I couldn't help go for that joke, Tommy. I had to go with I, it. I knew you were going after that. <laughs> so they end up with a source that uh, buys drugs off them. Now, uh, 
a little bit of a internal war starts between the Brooklyn DA's office and the Eastern District because now there's a tug of war, you know, because um, now they're not time-barred anymore, you know. It was, it was best suited to go federally, you know, it was. But uh, after, you know, the little, you know, we, we worked, we always worked well with the feds, but after a little bit of, uh, you know, arguments on both sides, people saw it the right way. It went the federal way. Um, you could have never flipped Kaplan and did what Kaplan needed to do without the feds agreeing anyway. So uh, it worked out for the best. Um, the DEA got more deeply involved. Uh, the Brooklyn DA's office, the U.S. Attorney's office, there were meetings once a week between all, all people involved. And, uh, the, you know, the more, more we had, Betty Heidel came in, was interviewed. Uh, when Bert flipped, he just said, tell Tommy Galpine, I said, it's okay to come in. And Tommy Galpine came right in to flip. Uh, a detective had an idea of looking through Frank Santoro's uh, telephone book. He was deceased and they found the body shop and the name of the guy who owned it and who was part of burying Israel Greenwald's body and he flipped. So it went from having nothing to having more like, you know, you had everything. And uh, they, they got indicted. Uh, they got locked up in Vegas. They got extradited back to New York. And uh, that was in 2005. And in 2006, it was uh, life with no parole. Convicted on all 79 counts, right, Tom? Yep. But when before they were arrested in Vegas, they were involved in some criminal activity in Vegas, weren't they? They were doing, I mean, I don't know for sure, you know, if they were doing anything really bad in Vegas. Couldn't tell you. I don't think anybody was watching them at the time. Um, I know that they did rip, I know that Bolito did rip off a couple of people because he was doing these B movies and trying to hook up with producers. I know one specific woman he ripped off for $40,000. Um, that's basically, uh, you know, what we, that wasn't enough. The drugs was what got him out there. Uh, and when he had handcuffs put on him, he told the agent, what took you so long? And Polito wow. said that? Yeah. Polito? You, you know else, what else, Tommy, is a, a very striking thing? We know that they were charged with the eight murders as well as all the other counts in the indictment. But you and I know personally there's other murders that they were never charged with. And well, we there were a total of 14, like they were, with, in one way or another, they were involved in. And there's a 15th that me and you know about that uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts they did. But uh, I don't know if that's ever going to go anywhere since uh, Danny Cerentano retired. You know, yeah, there's, some funny, there's some funny stuff in the chat. They're talking about if this stuff was made into a movie and just if there's any B-movie producers out there, we're, 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 looking for, we're looking to have a movie made. But look at this. Brad Pitt as Tommy. Come on. <laughs> I think Chuck Norris would be better. Chuck Norris is almost 80 years old. Come on. He'd be nearly as bad as Tommy. Wait, it looks I, like I, bad, like Bada, like Bada Bing. They spelled like Bada. <laughs> I saw another one. I saw another one, Bill. I'm going to try and pull it up. It was right in the beginning. It was great. Uh, and, and Tommy happens to know the actor, too. Uh, let's see. Madsen was the quote. 
Oh, he's good, Madsen. I, I spoke to him. I spoke to Madsen. Let me see if I can find it here. It said, uh, oh, geez, I'm not finding it. It basically said, I'm a big Tommy Dates fan, and I want to see Madsen with a shaved head play Tommy in the movie. Madsen's <laughs> a funny guy. When I saw that, I almost peed, but uh, I can't see. I, I think I think Madsen, though, would say sauce and sourced a little differently. Carrot Capital, Home Free, Toledo wrote the book, and appeared on Sally Jet. That, that, that's true as far as Betty went. Uh, when when she saw him on the Sally Jesse Raphael show, she ran out and bought the book. And I heard Kara Kappa went nuts when he put the picture of the both of them in that book. And Betty identified both of them in that book and testified to that. Uh, Bachelor Street. Tommy, do you know which store Queso ran into when Heidel tried to kill him? I think it yeah, was I know which one it was. It was, it was the Avenue. Golden Ox Restaurant on uh, Avenue N and East Seventh Street. Yep, Golden Ox Restaurant. Is that right, Tom? He went down the basement. Yeah, he ran into the restaurant. He made it through the kitchen into the basement, and he was going to try and go out the back. He was actually uh, found himself with no exit, but uh, they had taken off. He took off the right away. Yeah, I believe he was injured too. He he caught a he caught yeah, a he few caught something. He did flesh get wounds, hurt. though. He did yeah, get he, hurt. He wasn't seriously injured. Uh, Patrick Glanville, this could be an A movie, Coppola. <laughs> yeah, Francis kidding. Ford Coppola. I, I think he's retired though. We could bring him out of retirement. It's the 50 year anniversary of The Godfather. I just want everyone to know it was Bazzini all along. You know what the problem is with this story? I mean, I'm giving you just bits and pieces of it. It has so many spinoffs with different people. You know, it, it could go on. It, it's like you, you need two years to explain it to somebody because all the people that are involved in this case and the way it all came together and, and like, you know, you got like the, just the arrest of, uh, of Kaplan and Galpine. That was a whole separate case. It's called the Freddie Puglisi case. It was done by Frank Drew and the DEA. And uh, that's how they, that's how people, even, nobody even knew who Burke Kaplan was. Frankie Drew is the one who discovered Burke Kaplan. And, uh, you know, of course, when Queso flipped, he gave Bert up on stuff, you know, and everybody knew who he was. And everybody knew if Bert, that's why they gave Bert, they gave Bert 27 years for dealing pot. <laughs> so <laughs> he got 27 years for dealing I would call pot. that incentive to flip. What and they, they, they wanted him to flip in the worst way. And, and he, he, didn't. he wouldn't do it. And he was in jail eight years. And he told Ponzi, he goes, listen, I got enough business cards from law enforcement people to paint the walls of my cell with. He says, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming in. He wasn't coming in. And it got a little heated with him and Ponzi. And, uh, but they ended up where Bert wouldn't want to talk to anybody unless Joe was in the room. You know, Tommy, you, the way you're explaining it, that the tentacles of this case spread to so many different things. Think about it. They touched the the Paul Castellano murder by, uh, you know, contracting to do the murders that fell out from that. They were involved in so many different things. Gotti, Castellano, all organized crime. Yeah, and then Bruno, the other Bruno, stuff that we don't even know about. Bruno Facciola, who was a captain in the, in the Lucchese family, and they found him in a trunk of a car with a canary in his mouth. Uh and they're the ones who gave him up as being an informant. Whether he really was or not, I don't know. But uh, they labeled him a rat. And uh, 
it got past the queso and queso had him had him killed it's just really amazing when you look at the uh, the tentacles of this case, the, the reach that it had. But there was one other point that I wanted to make, Tom, going back, talking about the different personalities between Caracappa and Impolito. Now, I met Impolito several times, obviously. Never met Caracappa. I might have seen him, but I never was really introduced to him or spoke with him. But if you look at their personalities... Uh, Epolito was a bodybuilder when he was younger. He came across as this tough guy, uh, a clown, always joking, loud, uh, very, very boisterous. Whereas Caracappa was the quiet one, and he turned out to be the more deadly of the two from what we know, right? Correct? Oh, 100%. And Kaplan didn't like Epolito, so he dealt at some point directly with uh, with Cap with Caracappa. He would he knew Caracappa's cat's name, he knew the layout of his apartment, you know, and he he rather deal with Caracappa than Polito. He thought that Polito was gonna get them in trouble. Well, you know, the whole thing is also with uh Epolito writing that book, uh Mafia Cop, which is what this uh this case be uh became known as. And it would you know it's the same thing as uh, Gotti being too flamboyant having his picture taken too many times and just instead well, they, they of staying away from went through their head when they were in Las Vegas and they found out that uh queso cooperated, you know, um, talk they, about diarrhea. I mean, forget <laughs> it. You know, they, they must've really, uh, they only met each other. They only, far as I know, queso and Epolito Caracapa only saw each other face to face one time. And that was in the parking lot of Toys R Us on Flappish Avenue when they passed off Jimmy Idol to him. You know, just so you folks, uh, you folks know, in 2021, um, Queso died of COVID in prison. So, and and, and I believe that uh, Impolito and Caracapra are both dead. They died a couple of years apart. I think one was 2019, one 2017. Not sure the exact uh, dates, but they're both deceased too. And I think, Tommy, that case that we were talking about, number 15 that we know of, that probably had, uh, you know, the reason that it never went any further was because they were already dead. At, at best, they were going to get an exceptional clearance, you know? Yeah. That, There's a question, a question from Bachelor Street. How in the world... Did these two cops first link up? They didn't grow up together. Amazing. I, uh, that question will haunt me till the day I die. You know, that's a uh, great question. <laughs> it's we we all we could we could only put them together as of 1979 in the Brooklyn North Robbery Squad. Don't know if they knew each other in the Academy in '69, and we do know that in '79 in the Robbery Squad, Caracap approached the supervisor and wanted to be split up from. Epolito. Whether that was just a ruse or not, I don't know. But uh, the sergeant told them, give it a month or whatever, and never heard back that they want to split up again. So we don't, I don't know how you go from, you know, they definitely weren't childhood friends, that I can tell you. And I don't know how you go from, uh, you know, being in a robbery squad with somebody and not want to work with them to, you know, are we doing a homicide tonight? It's crazy. It is crazy. You know, Tommy, someone else in the chat, I love the way they just say, give me a break, Cannon. You know I meant badass. Tommy's a badass and needs like John Wick or Chuck to play him in a movie. Brad's too tender. That's right. <laughs> you go, real Robo, you go. I, I, I love the way people in the chat, though, come my way like I'm nothing. <laughs> no, but I like the way they just, they don't call you Bill or Sarge. It's 
Cannon. Hey, Cannon. Yeah. That's what my students used to call me when I used to teach yeah, college. They'd go, hey, Cannon. Those, <laughs> those guys got a wild side to him, too. Oh, we saw it a few times, Tommy. To work for. I'm sorry I never got to work for Absolutely. I agree, Tommy. I think it would have been a, a great boss to work for. Oh, someone's saying he didn't die of COVID. He had COVID when he died. He was going right. to die with or without it. Please. I'm sorry. That was the information that was put out there. Look, someone would get hit by a car during COVID, and they say the person died of COVID if they me. tested. Yeah. yeah. He was absolutely. sick, hey, so he was looking for, for a compassionate release, and uh, they wouldn't give it to him. No, I, there's no way he was going to get a compassionate, compassionate release. release. That ain't including guys that, like, he slit that throat and they lived. And I mean, listen, he was polite to me. He was polite to Mike. He was polite to Joe. You know, I, I, you know, he, he was very polite to us. Um, Tommy's so bad, Daisy <laughs> could strangle Perp with a cordless phone. <laughs> <laughs> Milwaukee civilian, you get the best joke of the night. That was great. Oh, that was excellent. I think some, he meant to say some, so badass. There's some <laughs> funny mofos in the chat. Yeah, we got some comedians. That's a good one. I'm going to use so that funny. one. I like that I one. Forgot what I was just going to say. That's so funny. But oh, <laughs> Queso, he he, he he was a gentleman to us, you know. But uh, he was a bad guy. He really was. He, he, Tommy, he was let me ask guy. you a question. You said that he sliced guy's throat. Did he, he have anything to do with slicing Buttons Guarino's throat? From that's what I was throat? talking about. Okay, okay. I thought that's what you were referencing. Yep. And everybody thought he killed him. But and he, he did. Said, he goes, you, you know, I killed this one. I killed that one. He, you don't think I'd admit to killing Buttons? He goes, I just slit his throat. <laughs> yeah. That's you know, he, he had that thing where he, he did a he did a he killed somebody in Sammy the Bull's club. And I mean usually that'd be a death sentence, so? right? Yeah. He I think he shot a guy in the 19th hole. According to according to Sammy on his podcast, he said Queso shot and killed someone in his club. I mean Queso uh he, he killed his killed his architect to his house. I don't want to laugh, but I mean if he dreamt that you were Cooperated. If he really, if he dreamt it, he killed you. He was so Al Diarco, who was the acting boss, uh, was so afraid that Queso was had delusions about him. He actually walked into Twenty Six Federal Plaza and and like called for the agents. Because you imagine sitting at your desk and you got the acting boss downstairs waiting to, to come up and. Tell you everything you want to know. That's like an agent's or a detective's dream come true. He was really <laughs> paranoid and delusional, huh? Oh, please. Forget about it. I think the architect was killed because he was late on paying him or something like that. He's a something, fucking wacko. Something stupid. I heard he didn't like his uh, his molding. I, um, <laughs> I personally, I did have interactions with the Sicilian Gambinos on 18th Avenue. They weren't... Um, it wasn't me who was uh, as knowledgeable as an agent that I worked with, uh, who was a, pretty much an expert on them. And there was some things I was involved in here and there, you know, but I wasn't uh, as familiar with the Sicilian end of the Gambino family as I was, you know, the more Americanized part of it. XXS, yes, he did whack his contractor that put a hidden safe in his house. How do you know yeah, that, XXX? 
Yeah. <laughs> one says it's the contractor. One says it's the architect. I think I it, mean, may been, it may have been the, the butler. Builder, whatever. It was somebody doing something on his oh, house. He, he, he definitely killed the architect. That that I know for a fact. He killed the architect. Apparently, the architect was complaining that he was late on paying him or something like that, and he had him killed. And the, the contract with the safe, though, that would be interesting because there'd be motive. He knows where the safe is. Hey, Mo, thank you for the $4.99. He says, I remember Tommy in the New Jersey mob documentary. In my neighborhood, you can always tell who belonged to Jersey or New York. Jersey drove beat Lincoln's New York had caddies. <laughs> I love that. The Jersey mob, we considered triple A baseball. Yeah, they were the triple A and the major leagues were in. If you couldn't make it in New York, you had to go to Jersey. Well, that, that's because that was the Sopranos, you know, when they were hanging out at Satriel's. Yep. <laughs> and listen to me, through that case, they did, there were bugs all over the place. And the, the, the DiCavalcanti family, um, really were talking about they used this against them in the trial because they were there was there was definitely somebody in that family talking to david chase i i don't care what anybody tells me because there were so many things that happened on the sopranos that really happened in the real life Canty family and the decavo Canty family themselves when they were being bugged were talking about how similar, like, the show was about them, which, like, was presented to the jury, like, they were saying, yes, the show's about us, and what's The Sopranos about? Organized Jersey, organized crime. So it, it, it sunk them in a way, but it was kind of comical because so many things in The Sopranos and the, and the real-life DiCavalcanti's really were the same. Yeah, absolutely. XXS. She's responding to what I said before. I just do. I am no one, but I know tons of stuff and people. Who are you with? That's what they say. <laughs> who are you with? <laughs> who she with? Find out who she's with. Who on. she's with? I don't want to talk. I don't want to insult her. I might get whacked. <laughs> you know, Tommy, what you're talking about, the, the parallels between the real... Uh, you know, from the Sopranos that, that you did on, uh, you did the, uh, the the documentary, The Real Sopranos, the the parallels, they actually caught them talking about it on wiretaps. They, they yeah. played the wiretaps during your documentary where you, you know said, they were was... show on TV and they were talking about me. You see this, Tommy, on the screen? Why don't you answer that? South Homicide, do you wish a witness would now come forward to give? If I really tell you, um, <laughs> Uh, that's a great question. It's a good question, and I got a lot, of, lot I could think of of of, uh, of of asking. Um, one, I don't know if you're gonna know the name, but uh, 1980 murder of someone named Jimmy Boy Melfi, um, found in the six one in the trunk of his car, Mother's Day weekend. That would be one. Um, John F. Kennedy. <laughs> that, Jimmy I'm Oswald. Very, very, very intrigued with that murder. You know? Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> well, Jimmy Hoffa, John, John F. Kennedy, but J Jimmy Boy Melfi, if I had a organized crime stuff, Jimmy Boy Melfi would be a murder that, and, uh, well, we know, we know who did that one, but Jimmy Boy Melfi would be one I'd like to know who, uh, who killed him. It's a great question. You know, John Wolf says, imagine instructing someone to place a hidden safe in the home they're building for you 
and you turn around and kill them because he knows where the safe is. He knows where the safe is in. Very good point. I don't do safes. I don't think anybody <laughs> ever had the nerve to go and rob that safe knowing who it belonged to, you know? So <laughs> that's, that's another thing, point. right? Yeah, you ain't going in that house too easily if you know who lives there. You know, he was totally nuts. Was uh, was was Tony Soprano based on Vinny Ocean? Yeah. Yes, and to and Vinny Ocean had a strip club called Wiggles in yep. Queens. Um, you know, they they kids went to private schools. Uh, there was in the in the De Calicanti family, there was a boss that they found out. He says that's the name of the architect, Anthony oh, okay. Fava. And yes, that's that's on Wikipedia. That's on Wikipedia. But, and um, guest pipe whacked him. There was a there was a, a gay boss that was determined in the Cavalcanti family that Anthony Capo killed, and then there was the guy, what's his name, in uh, the Sopranos that they found in a gay club and they killed him. Joe Ganascoli, who I actually yeah, was, went to school there was with. So many, so many similarities. Someone uh, dying of uh, stomach cancer, you know, like. There's just a lot of different similarities. See, what happened was the source gave a bunch of guys, they had burner phones. So he went there, they went to the, all the guys and said, listen, these burner phones, you don't got to put no time on them. It's unlimited. You can use them all you want. But every one of them <laughs> was, was, was tapped. We were up on. Yeah. So you got everything that was coming out of there. You know, it was, it was a great case. That is a great case. Oh, here's, a, here's an easy one. Met Ibrahim, a question for Tommy. This was a Manhattan case, Joel Steinberg, and the case was worked on by Irma Rivera, who we've had on the show numerous times. She was a brand-new Manhattan special victims detective. The case actually was caught by a detective in the 6th Precinct because that's where it occurred, but she had a lot to do with that case, and Joel Steinberg is out now in case some of you folks in the ch that yeah was, he's out that was a in case you guys yeah. don't know he he i think they only convicted him of manslaughter he did 15 he did the full 15 but he did the, he did the max bad guy he, he was a yeah, motherfucker right but the max was only 15 i think you feel because it was a manslaughter yeah, one he, he didn't get convicted of the top charges but what he did to the to the to the wife i forget her name but had a nussbaum had a they he destroyed yes. her her face was all distorted from being beaten then he killed that little girl i mean 15 Dad. years he should have died in jail that prick yeah excuse my french yeah, you know something. The thing was is that uh, that was the biggest uh, case of like child abuse, yes. where it changed the way the NYPD did investigations. You know, because the guy was an attorney, he probably intimidated the uniformed cops from going into the apartment. And they, you know, he was like, "Hey, why are you coming in? Oh, we want to take a look at the apartment." Have a search warrant. Yeah, all, all of that kid, stuff. That so. See her face, what he did to her? Had a nussbaum. Yeah. I'm glad you thought of the name, Billy. She was really brutalized. It's terrible. And I think that's exactly what happened, Bill. His, his, uh, you know, his stature as an attorney, he probably challenged the cops on legalities and stuff like that. And that probably helped them to- uh, Yeah, and they walked away. His, his heinous crimes. Andrew B., thank you for the $20 super chat. Hey, guys, love the show. The question is for Tommy. Do you think a guy like John Papa would have eventually- <laughs> Been embraced by Ma, but do you think he was too much of a wild card? Thanks. There were guys that cooperated that Papa answered to. And uh, we were told later later on that uh, had we not locked them up within a month, 
he would have he would have disappeared. They had it in for him. They were going to kill him. Yeah, they were going to kill him. Yeah, because you can't have someone that is that loose of a cannon. And sorry to use my last it name to describe craziness. With the gun, it was how loose he was with his mouth. Yeah. And people knew that pe people that did murders with him knew that he was telling other people about him. So when he, he bragged got about his murder sprees, right, Tom? I mean, he talked about it right out in the open. Like he, it was talk, he, he, he admitted at least, there's at least two people he admitted all his murders to. And then there was some other people that he admitted, like one or two of them to, you know. And then there was all the drug dealing. There was the guns. There was a gun that we caught him. We freaking guy pulled a gun on me and the agent running into the church. Yeah, that's a whole crazy story. But Tommy, wasn't it? Wasn't there a conversation where somebody brought up a murder and he took credit for it? He says, "Oh, that was me." He got, he was killing people who were taking credit for doing murders that he was involved in, and he wanted the credit. So if you took the credit for a homicide that he did, that he did, he'd kill you. <laughs> Dana Cordopassi, I like your name. To answer that question, they have the devices to see everything from money to safes to bodies, often used before they excavate someplace they believe a body is buried. Well, they have cadaver dogs too, and the dog will give the positive hit. We used those cadaver dogs during 9-11 to find a lot of bodies. They also have. Um, they have ground X-ray. We have the ground X-rays that we used when we were looking for bodies in like uh, garages with like eight feet of concrete. The problem is, if there's a big pipe down there, you'll end up breaking up eight feet, you know, and you'll find you know a big round pipe. They use that. They use that ground X-ray on the uh, on the Tommy Patera case at the bird sanctuary. At the bird sanctuary. I think there's still bodies left there. From what I was told yeah. by uh, one of the guys that cooperated in that case, that they didn't dig them all up. They didn't get them all. <laughs> you know, guys, we're coming close to uh, almost at an hour and fifteen. I just want to plug something tomorrow night. But tomorrow night's show, we have a company uh, CEO coming on, a company called Converis, and they have this. A system. It's a machine called iDetect. And when someone is being interviewed by the police or for a job, the camera zeroes in on their pupils. And I don't know if you guys know this, and most good interviewers and interrogators do know this. When you lie, your pupils constrict. And when you tell the truth or you're happy, your pupils, dilate. they dilate. They get bigger. Difficult to see with your own eyes, because if someone's wearing glasses or just to look into someone's eyes and see the pupil constrict, but the eyes give people away. And we know that as interviewers and interrogators and as investigators. However, this company invented a camera that actually zeroes in on the pupil. And it's almost like a lie detector test, but that uses the eyes to detect deception. So the, the uh, CEO of that company is coming on tomorrow. His name's Todd Mickelson, and the company is Converse. So Phil and I are going to take a deep dive into that. We're going to grill the CEO. We don't want to grill them too hard because they bought an ad <laughs> with us. So, but and we want to. We I hope that their technology is really useful to law enforcement. It sounds like it will be, Billy. I mean, obviously, uh, the lie detector test isn't admissible in court. However, it's used as a tool and a technique to possibly, uh, you know, find out if someone someone's being deceptive or untruthful. 
and uh, you know, it's just one of the other tools in the toolbox of law enforcement. It sounds like a great thing. And, uh, I hope that, uh, it's successful and I'm curious to hear what the statistics are and how it works. It's going to be a, a great show. Billy, I wanted to mention about our friend, Michael Grimm. I don't know. Do you have that picture loaded? I don't Phil. It didn't okay. come up in time. All right. Well, listen, I'll, I'll just, we'll bring it up next show, I guess. But Michael Grimm is over in the Ukraine. He's, uh, uh, an on-the-spot reporter for Newsmax, and uh, he sent us a, a, a photograph of himself in the Ukraine. Mike, uh, keep your head down. Stay safe out there. He's a correspondent for Newsmax. Like I said, there was a story in the paper the other day that, that he supplied, and uh, he's doing reports from there. So he's a former congressman, former FBI agent, uh, former uh, Desert Storm Marine. So uh, good luck, Mike, and stay safe, and God bless you, pal. You know, we also interviewed a guy named Jonathan Alpiri, who is a, a war photographer, and he's over there too. And he sent me a picture of him filling up sandbags. So he's right in in the action. You know, those guys, uh, crazy job, you know, to be a yeah. photographer of a war. It's really, really crazy. I think, I, uh, I think the picture that uh, Michael sent me, I could check on my phone, but I think he's in Kiev. Kiev and that's one of the... Uh, the, the 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 capitals of ukraine and and so he's in a real high uh you know a high combat area so let's hope that these guys make it out okay and uh get back home safely i gotta read this one last question real with robo canon what if they're a sociopath their bodies don't react like normal ones will it detect that <laughs> that's what we're gonna find out real yeah, exactly that's why we're doing a show on it tomorrow but, make sure you come on tomorrow night and ask yeah, come on tomorrow night and ask me some I can, I can just hear the tone of your voice by the way it's written canon you know <laughs> tommy final words uh always a pleasure to be on the show always great to talk to you two guys and uh Thank everybody for watching. Uh, always have a good time. Thank you. It's great. Philly? Listen, Tommy, thank you so much for coming on. You know you're one of my closest friends, and uh, we love you to come on. This stuff is so intriguing. This is just an unbelievable case. It's amazing how it's spread over so many years. The biggest corruption scandal in NYPD history, uh, how it's not been made into a motion picture yet is really, really beyond uh, belief, but... Uh, I know that there's a couple of things in the works and good luck with everything, Tommy. And thanks for coming on. And while I'm away on vacation, uh, you might have to wear the uh, straight out of book on that, Tommy. So let's see. That's right. Pull it off. Tommy's going to fill in for uh, Phil when Phil that's goes on vacation. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's going to just sit down here. Look I, 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 I got to get him a shot of adrenaline or something. Or I got to perk him up a little bit, you know. Just you know make, I want sure, to <laughs> make sure that your hair's in every hair's in place, Tommy. That's right. I, I, I wanted to ask Tommy, you know, Phil spends every Sunday stirring his sauce. Who stirs your sauce, Tommy? S A U C E, not S O U R C E. Billy's a food connoisseur. Like, I try. <laughs> a, I try. He's a, if, I mean, for, he knows every restaurant, every dish to order, not to order. You know, I mean, he really is. He's the kind of sewer on food. A lot of that <laughs> time I call him was Lenny from L and B. He took me. That's to what it is. Every time I call him, where, where are you going? Oh, I'm on my way to this restaurant. I'm on my way to that restaurant. I would Lenny. <laughs> you know what? COVID put the brakes on it really a lot. Yeah, obviously with what was going on with COVID, but now that was never catch him anyway. He's always somewhere, Phil. He's always yeah. somewhere. Yeah, I know. He's uh, whenever I call him, he, I I hear traffic, I hear trains, I hear air, I, I hear jets. I'm hearing everything. He's cooking sauce. If he's not cooking sauce, he's in a restaurant in Manhattan. 
I, I think I think he's got a huge pot with like an oar, like for a boat that he stirs it with, you know? <laughs> I let my wife start a saw. She lets me start once in a while. <laughs> no, he's he's got a little a little outboard motor and he just puts it in there and it stirs it up. It's like you a know little that thing that you you put it into the pot. It's got it's it's what you described basically. It's a little motor and you, you we got one of those. Yeah, you, yeah, it's sort of like an egg beater, but it's it's got like a wand or something. Anyways. <laughs> Mo says, I want some roasted garlic and spend it on garlic bread. Oh, oh man. <laughs> I see Philly's face. Listen, <laughs> because if you, uh, we'll talk about that on top of <laughs> The garlic, you, you got you to gotta, you, you gotta melt butter on top of it in the oven. Olive yeah, oil and butter. I can't you know, butter. It's got to be olive oil. I hate butter. You know, right, we're, spo- well, we're supposed to do another show of coppers in the kitchen to teach everyone how to yeah, cook. We're, we're going to film yeah. that either tomorrow or the next day, Billy. I hope that's you, right. We got to get you, that you going. Ready, Bill, for that? I'm ready, man. I'm ready. Uh, I just uh, you, let me know if it's a definite because I just got to pick up a couple more ingredients. Yeah, we got to get well, tomorrow or the next day. We'll film it. It'll be out there by uh, next week sometime. All right, guys, folks. Thank I you think so much, everybody. Tommy, thanks for coming on, thank folks. You, thank you, you all for listening. Thank you all you guys who gave us the super chats. It's very much appreciated. Thanks for all the thumbs up. Good night, everybody. Stay. One episode, just